day on In Spirit and Truth with Pastor J.D. Farag. Stop praying, get moving. There does come a time where God will say, not only I release you from praying for them, but God will say to you, you know what, I heard your prayer, I've already answered it, why are you still praying? I've already given you the answer, can't you see the Red Sea? I just parted it, hello? Look, look at the dry ground. Why are you still praying for something I just did? Now get moving. Are there times where God may tell you to stop praying? Yep. Pastor J.D. will talk about the times God told people to stop praying in the Bible and why he might tell you the same thing. It might be a release from praying for someone, or as you just heard from Pastor J.D., it might be because you need to act. Now, be sure to stay with us after today's message to hear how you can get your own copy of today's broadcast. Subscribe to the In Spirit and Truth podcast or download the In Spirit and Truth iPhone or Android mobile app. But for now, here's Pastor J.D. in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 7, with today's edition of In Spirit and Truth. Verse 13, because you have done all these works, says the Lord, and I spoke to you rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear, and I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house which is called by my name, in which you trust. Did you catch that? Oh, you put your trust in the temple. You put your trust in your numerical strength. You've put your trust in that which I gave you, which is what he says next, in which you trust, and to this place which I I gave to you and your fathers, as I have done to Shiloh. And, verse 15, I will cast you out of my sight, as I have cast out all your brethren, the whole posterity of Ephraim. Interesting reference to Shiloh. What was Shiloh? Well, it was a city close to proximity to Jerusalem. It was for what some believe to be about 350 years plus the location of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, And this is why Jeremiah is told by God to have them compare what happened in Shiloh and to Shiloh with them there in Jerusalem. Because what happened in Shiloh was the tabernacle was destroyed. Why was the tabernacle destroyed? Because of their wickedness. In other words, Jerusalem, Judah, you remember Shiloh, your forefathers? You remember the tabernacle in Shiloh? You remember how it stood as a place where I did great things, the tent of meeting, the Shekinah glory of God, the Ark of the Covenant? This was the tabernacle that would then be replaced by the temple. Same design, but it was a temporary structure that would point to and foreshadow the permanent temple there in Jerusalem. 
And for 350 years, this was a place of worship. My name, my house, my tabernacle. And it was blessed. And then because of the wickedness, it was destroyed. The Philistines and the Assyrians would ultimately destroy it and take the northern tribes of Israel captive. And Judah, southern Judah, is going to follow in the same footsteps. And that's why he brings up Shiloh. What's the point and what's the application to our lives? I think we would do well to remember what's happened in the past and bring it into the present lest we suffer the same fate in the future. Let it be a warning to you. I'm pleading with you. I'm, <laughs> I'm getting up early in the morning. I'm trying to call you, but you're not picking up. You're not answering. I'm pleading with you. I'm warning you, and you will not respond. I'm doing everything and stopping at nothing, and I'm trying to keep you from suffering the same fate as Shiloh, but that's the direction you're heading. That's exactly what's going to happen. And you know what's sad? That's exactly what happened. Therefore, and here it is, verse 16, we're going to spend a little bit of time on this. This is God now speaking to Jeremiah. Do not pray for this people. Now stop right there, because the implication here is that Jeremiah was praying for this people. Otherwise, why would God make it a point to say, don't pray for them, were it not that he was praying for them? And he says, nor lift up a cry or prayer for them. I mean, he was crying out to God on behalf of the people of God. And he was interceding on their behalf, because he then says, nor make intercession to me. And here's why, Jeremiah, for I will not hear you. Jeremiah is being released from praying for this people. Because again, God knows the end from the beginning. God knows that they will not respond and God is, in effect, sparing and releasing Jeremiah from the burden of praying for them when he knows, God knows, that they will not repent. They will not change their ways. They will not return to him. So just stop praying for them. Now again, as I mentioned before you, start crossing people off of your, your prayer list. Let's be careful here, and prayerful here really, because there does come a time when God will release you, and He'll make it clear. Just, you know what, you don't need to pray for them anymore. Don't pray for them anymore. Now, we may not know why it could be assumed, I suppose, in all fairness, that God already knows that their heart is hardened, their mind is made up, and their fate is sealed, and there's no need to pray for them. But just God is releasing you. There are 
times, and I know in my own life, and I've heard from friends of mine over the years, where people, they just came to this place, we're talking 15, 20 years, not that they're giving up on the person, but they just sense this release from the Lord to not pray for them anymore. Now, it could very well be that God has somebody else praying for them. We don't know. But God will oftentimes deem it necessary to tell us or release us from praying for someone. I know of only one other time in Scripture when God says not to pray, and it's found in Exodus 14 at the Red Sea. And very different set of circumstances, but God basically tells Moses to stop praying and start moving. Because you're going to cross on dry ground, I'm going to part this Red Sea. And here's Moses crying out to God, oh God, and God's like, why are you still crying to me? Stop. Stop praying and get moving. Now why do I bring that up? Because, and please hear me out on this, and I'll speak for myself. I know in my own life that I have taken license for inaction. I've made prayer an excuse for inaction. Oh, I'm still praying about it. Oh, okay. Wait. (laughs) God's like, why are you still praying? Stop praying. Get moving. See, prayer can sometimes, and it sounds so noble, right? I mean, what are you going to say to that? Well, I'm still praying about it. Okay. You're still praying about it. Five years later, I'm still praying about it. Really? Five more years, ten years go by, I'm still praying about it. Maybe you need to do something about it. Stop praying, get moving. There does come a time where God will say, not only I release you from praying for them, but God will say to you, you know what, I heard your prayer, I've already answered it, why are you still praying? I've already given you the answer, can't you see the Red Sea? I just parted it, hello, look, look at the dry ground. Why are you still praying for something I just did? Now get moving, go. Step out. Move. Okay, that's, uh, are you okay? This is a touchy topic, isn't it? The presupposition here is that we actually do pray. Now, wait a minute. Maybe we need to talk about this. And again, I'll, I'll speak for myself on this one. One of the things I'm learning in my walk with the Lord when it comes to prayer is there's no such thing as praying enough or too much. Have you ever heard that expression, or perhaps you've said it, and I don't mean to be mean or derogatory, but I remember many years ago I heard someone say to me, I'm prayed up. I'm like, what? How, How do you do that? How do you, do you just come to the point where you say, okay, I've prayed enough. There's no such thing. I think the Apostle Paul said it like this, pray continually. Which, by the way, means that when you pray, you don't have to be on your knees. Nothing wrong with that. 
it's not the posture of your body, it's the posture of your heart. And your eyes close because if I'm praying continually, well what about when I'm driving? I kind of need my eyes open when I'm driving, but I do a lot of prayer when I'm driving. I've already confessed that, so I'm not going to tell you about that anymore, but I do my best praying when I'm, when I'm driving, actually, <laughs> especially when I'm looking for a parking spot. But pray continually without ceasing. You don't stop. There's, as one said it, in fact, authored a book by the same name, it's this constant conscious communion with God, where all day, every day throughout the day, you're just in this constant prayer, talking with the Lord, and He's talking with you all day. Sometimes I'll catch myself, or my daughter will come up to my office, and I'm She's like, what are you doing? Are you talking to yourself? Is it that bad? Are you losing it? What's the matter with you? No, I'm, I'm praying. I pray out loud. Because sometimes it's important to hear yourself pray. And by the way, when you, when you pray out loud, you're also more focused in your prayer. When you pray in your mind, it's very different, right? Because then all of a sudden you kind of wander off. And and by the way, have you noticed this? I'm sure you have. But when you set your foot to pray, doesn't all H-E double toothpicks break loose? I mean, emails start coming in, phone starts ringing, everything starts happening. Someone's at the door, wrong address. Someone's on the phone, wrong number. Hmm, I see what's happening here. Kids start fighting. Oh, really? Right now. You're going to start fighting right now when I'm going to start praying. I see what's going on here. You know why that is, right? Satan knows that prayer is the deciding factor. So he will do everything he can to keep a Christian from praying. Because he knows that when a Christian prays, it is game over for him. It is game over. So he'll do everything he can to dislodge the weapon of prayer from our hands. I love the illustration, best illustration ever heard. You've got this fight between two opponents, and when one wields a knife, that changes everything. So the opponent will do everything he can to get the knife out of the hand of his opponent, because he knows that that knife is the deciding factor. Well, that knife is prayer, and Satan knows it. And he'll do everything he can to dislodge the knife of prayer from the hand of a Christian, because he knows it's his defeat when a Christian prays. That's, by the way, that's also why it is that prayer is hard work. When you pray, it's hard to pray because, and by the way, for those of you that have insomnia, pray and read the Bible, you're out like a light. It's like, oh no, he's praying, he's reading the Bible, put him to sleep, we can't have that. Well, I think he got the point. Verse 17, this is rhetorical of course, but wow, chilling. (laughs) 
Do you not see what they do in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? Get this, verse 18. The children gather wood, the fathers kindle the fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for, and hold on to this, the queen of heaven. This is a family affair. You've got the kids and the parents all doing this together, worshiping, preparing, and they pour out drink offerings to other gods that they may provoke me to anger. Do they provoke me to anger? Verse 19 says the Lord. Do they not provoke themselves to the shame of their own faces? Okay. We've talked about this dynamic of disconnecting and disenfranchising ourselves from the application of the text. Let me expound on that. A chapter like this, really a book like the book of Jeremiah, it is so easy for us as Christians to disenfranchise ourselves from what we're reading under the banner of, well, this is for them. This isn't for me. And besides, I mean, come on. I would never do that. Making cakes for the queen of heaven? (laughs) That doesn't apply to me. I'm pretty sure there's not one of us here that has this verse or this passage on their wallpaper. You know, like a memory verse. My life verse is Jeremiah chapter 7. They made cakes for the queen of heaven. What? Well, not so fast. Does the Queen of Heaven sound familiar to you? Alive and well today. She's known as the Mother Mary. To them, in Jeremiah's day, this was Ishtar the goddess of, you'll forgive me, sex, fertility, prosperity, lust, Ishtar. And by the way, the the queen of heaven, also you'll see these depictions of mother and child. And they are the creepiest things you'll ever see. This is not Mary and the baby Jesus. This is a pagan mother-son God that was worshipped then. You know, again, Satan's the master counterfeiter. And the counterfeit authenticates and validates the genuine. That's why you'll never see a counterfeit $70 bill. There's no such thing as a genuine. So you're always going to have the counterfeit, the antithesis. This is why there are false Christs and not an antichrist, and not false Buddhas or false Mohammeds. This queen of heaven was a pagan goddess that they worshipped and made offerings to. And this was an abomination to the Lord. Now getting back to this disconnecting or disenfranchising ourselves from the application of the text, we're about to see it get even more graphic here in a moment. But the prophetic parallels to what was happening in Jeremiah's day 
are happening in our day today. This pagan worship is alive and well. They're worshiping these pagan deities in these forms. Verse 20, therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my anger and my fury will be poured out on this place, on man and on beast, on the trees of the field and on the fruit of the ground, and it will burn and not be quenched. Thus says the Lord of hosts, verse 21, the God of Israel, add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat meat. For I did not speak to your fathers or command them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices. Just hang on, this is all going to make sense in a moment. But this, verse 23, is what I commanded them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, because obedience is better than sacrifice. God is not diminishing the sacrifice. He's emphasizing the obedience. Because see, the sacrifice that you're bringing into my house, in my name, my temple, you're doing this, but it means nothing to me because there's no obedience to me. You can sacrifice all you want. And by the way, I never commanded this or desired this. What I desire is obedience over sacrifice. Obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people and walk in all the ways that I have commanded you, that it may be well with you. I don't want you to rush past this, because at first read it's easily missed. I want it to be well with me. In fact, truth be made known, I pray to this end. I want things to go well in my life. Lord, bless my life. I want things to go good. I want it to be well with me. And here's God going, I want that too for you. I so want to answer that prayer and grant you that grace, but you've not obeyed me. You've not obeyed me. Yet, verse 24, they did not obey or incline their ear, but followed the counsels and the dictates of their evil hearts and went backward and not forward. Oh, isn't that how it is? I mean, it, listen, it takes no effort to backslide. It takes absolutely no effort to backslide. I mean, it's the inclination <laughs> of our hearts. By the way, you've, uh, I'm sure, heard this expression, perhaps again, even said this yourself. And again, I'm not trying to be derogatory or mean or harsh or anything, but you know that saying, oh, just follow your heart. No! Don't follow your heart. We're going to see in Jeremiah the heart is deceitfully wicked. 
We're so glad you joined us for this edition of In Spirit and Truth with Pastor J.D. The book of Jeremiah is one of those books that's not the easiest to walk through in the Old Testament. It's almost like you see the train wreck that's up ahead and you want to warn them, but they just don't listen. Then you have other verses in this book that are commonly claimed, but what does it really mean in the context of what's going on? Jeremiah 29 11 says, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. But if you're looking at the train wreck up ahead, you wonder, how does claiming that verse fit with exile and judgment? Ultimately, God's plan and purpose are to bring people back to himself in reliance and dependence on him, not in their own possessions or their comfort. The same could be said for you today. You may be going through something that seems like judgment or exile, but are you drawing closer to the Lord in the process? There's a future and a hope, but it may play out differently than you'd like. If you're just getting into this study and want to listen to other teachings from Jeremiah, go to calvarychapelkaneohe.com to find these messages. There are a variety of additional resources on our website. Until we meet again, we encourage you to dive deep into God's Word and then come back for our next edition where Pastor J.D. will continue on in the book of Jeremiah. We look forward to that time with you here on In Spirit and Truth.